Good morning again. It's great to be with you in worship. Welcome again to In Town Church. We're glad that you've joined us. Uh, we've been taking this year, almost of this year, other than the special holiday seasons, to go through the, the Gospel of Luke. And we've come now to Luke chapter 14. Let me read our Gospel reading for us. When he noticed how the guest picked pl- the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the, same, at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Steve and I have been talking about Luke somewhat, and we've been asking uh, well, here comes another passage that's just like the one before, just like that, uh, the invitation before, just like the meal that we had that we looked at a few weeks ago. And how do we be original when Luke keeps telling us the same thing over and over? That's quite an American question, right? How do we be novel? How do we be new? How do we keep everyone's attention as we read through the gospel of Luke? But maybe Luke is trying to convey repetitiveness here because Jesus himself was repetitive over a certain set of things. There are certain things that Jesus thought were very much worth saying over and over. Jesus is asking and answering throughout this gospel and in this particular passage, who is it who sees? Who is it who understands? Who is it who comprehends the kingdom? Who is it? What type of person responds to his gospel? And the surprise that we 
need to hear over and over, apparently, is that it's not the people that we expect. It's not the religious, it's not the culturally comfortable, it's not the acceptable people, it's not the moral people. They, for some reason, don't see clearly. They don't naturally comprehend the nature of the kingdom and the invitation of Jesus' gospel. But the outcast, those on the margins, the non-religious, the immoral, they see, they get it. They cling to the invitation and receive it and run to Jesus. Now listen, how many of us here are in that last group? Very few, if any. Most of us here are in the first group. And so we need to ask ourselves, what about me? What about my situation, my environment, my background, my history, my education, my social class prevents me from seeing what Jesus wants me to see? prevents me from actually getting the gospel, understanding the kingdom, that it's a, a, a feast of festival joy, of laughing, of partying for those who don't have the resources to do it themselves. We're going to look just at three things this morning, the invitation, the in crowd, and the infinite feast, the invitation to the party, the in crowd, and then the infinite feast that Jesus invites you and I to. Before we do that, let's pray for our time together. Father, thank you for this chance to interact with your word, to hear the same story again, for apparently we need to hear it. We see ourselves as those worthy of getting an invitation to your feast. And we see the kingdom oftentimes in terms of hard work and duty and trying to do the best we can instead of a party, instead of laughing, instead of infinite joy. And Father, I pray that you would help us understand that though, yes, there is discipline, there is Christian discipleship, that it is, it is discipleship towards a party, towards joy, towards laughing, towards an infinite feast with you. I pray that you would help us to get that wherever we're coming from this morning. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you have heard this story. I think I've told it here before. But in 1990, the Boston Globe ran an article on a wedding feast that became something different. It was set up to be a wedding feast, but it didn't, in in fact, end up being a wedding feast. The bride calls this hotel. It's a swanky place, and she reserves this big part of the hotel. She reserves space and catering and the most lavish reception that she could imagine for her wedding day. And she paid $25,000 just for the reception alone. Now, that's a lot of money, but in 1990, it was even more. She hired tuxedo-clad wait staff. Everything was in place except one thing, the groom. The groom got cold feet and wouldn't show up. And so she called the hotel in a panic, but because it was so late, they said, we can't give your money back. We could have rented this out to someone else. And so you know, I'm sorry, but you're out of luck. So what does she do? Does she mope around? Does she just say, woe is me, and complain? No, she throws a party anyway. And guess who she invites? She goes around town to the homeless shelters, the soup kitchens, the assisted living home, and invites all of the people that she can find, that she can fit into this room, that could never afford a room at that hotel or a meal of this sort. The only thing that she changed was the menu, and she served boneless, spineless chicken in honor of the groom. (laughs) 
it turns out that she was on the street 10 years earlier. She now had money to spend on a wedding, but 10 years previously, she had none. She was on the street. So the people that she were, was inviting were her kind of people. Jesus has been invited to a dinner party, and it's in a respectable, a religious home. It's in a Pharisee's home. And Jesus was a very confusing character to these types of people. On one hand, he's definitely a holy man. He prays three times a day. He teaches at the synagogue. He can go toe-to-toe with any of the religious knowledge workers of his day. But on the other hand, he seems to be very different. And many people refer to him as a glutton, as a wine-bibber. And so you can understand why these respectable religious people who are waiting for Messiah might be skeptical, and they want to make sure. And so immediately prior to our passage, they set up a test for Jesus, and they put a guy with edema or dropsy, which is a swelling type of disease, in the doorway just to see what Jesus will do because it's the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus heals him and then looks at them as if they've been the ones who have misunderstood the Sabbath. Would God not want us to heal? Would God not want us to do acts of mercy and charity on the Sabbath? Then he chastises them for how they choose seats. They're angling for places of honor. And what Jesus is saying is that's a sure way to miss what I'm saying. That's a sure way to miss the kingdom. And then he turns to the host, which you're not supposed to do. And he says, I see a bunch of respectable people here. I see a bunch of proper people here. But where are the poor? Where are the crippled? Where are the lame? Where are the blind? Are you waiting for Messiah or not? Because when Messiah comes, those are the people that will be present. Where are they? And you could hear a pin drop because he's challenged everyone in the room And one guy just raises his hand just to break the silence. Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. It's a non sequitur. And Jesus totally continues the path that he was on. He isn't done. He tells him a second parable. A respectable person like this throws a party and invites other respectable people, people in the upper crust, but they don't come. They begin to make excuses. And these excuses are all things that have great significance if Jesus is not who he says he is. They're all things that are very, very important if Jesus is not bringing in the greatest party that the world has ever known. What is Jesus telling us? He's telling us, is, what he's telling us is if we are building a life that is all about us, if we're constructing a life from the ground up on our own agenda, then we can certainly fit spirituality into that. But that's not what spirituality is meant to do, and that's not what Jesus' spirituality is meant to do. Spirituality cannot be just one aspect of your larger hopes for life. It can't be just one little aspect of your agenda. If so, you've missed the point, you'll miss the kingdom, you'll miss Jesus, you'll miss the real thing, because that's not what he's about. David Brooks is a New York Times columnist, and he writes on a variety of things. But one of the things that he's written books about is kind of the 
the way that we use space and the way that we move through space in the built environment. And he coined this term sprinkler cities for some of the new developments that grew up around uh, older traditional cities in the 1990s and 2000s. They're sprinkler cities because every one of them has a big green yard with a picket fence. And these developments were given to satisfy every need that someone could have, every wish that someone could have in their neighborhood. So it's multi-million dollar homes, malls needed to be built, movie screens, golf courses, lush horse stables, trailer, um, uh, trails to run on, new restaurants. The only thing that never got built in one of these developments was what? A worship space, a church, because who needs that? Who needs a place of worship? Who needs spirituality of that sort? Who needs a pulpit that's calling you to radical dependence upon Jesus? Radical sacrifice. If your whole agenda in life is comfort and self-satisfaction, it doesn't fit. These people said, well, when they received the king's engraved invitation, sounds really great, but I need to keep an eye on the market. That sounds really great, but I've got an appointment with my contractor. That sounds really great, but I've got an exercise class. Can I take a rain check? Now, he's not saying that these things don't have their place or are unimportant. What Jesus is doing is using two very real-life experiences, very real-life cultural examples that would be relevant to his crowd, the purchase of property and marriage. Those two things had incredible impact upon your future prosperity. And so Jesus is pointing out that these people are weighing their options. What's going to get me ahead in life? What's going to secure my future prosperity? These things are ultimately important. They're weighing their options and making a choice to not go to the party, to not attend to the feast because of their priorities. They're making a judgment on the relative value of this invitation and their agenda. Don't we constantly do much the same thing? Don't we constantly weigh our options and then choose the thing that brings us the most self-gratification, the most importance, the most significance, the most meaning that brings us the good life? Many of us are almost immune to commitments. We hold our options open as long as we possibly can because something better may come up. And what we're doing, what we're saying to the person that's inviting us to something, we're saying, I may value this invitation, but it all depends on what comes up. It all depends on my agenda. Once I hear back from all other opportunities, then I'll let you know whether I can come. Now, what Jesus is saying is not that these other things, your exercise class, mowing the lawn, all of those things have great importance and God values those things. It's not that they're unimportant or don't have their place. It's that spirituality, just like anything else, can be commodified and it can be take its place in your agenda rather than seeking to uproot your agenda and put you on Jesus's. We need to ask ourselves this morning, especially if we have rejected Jesus? Are we rejecting him for the right reasons? Have we judged Jesus rightly? Have you rejected him on grounds that he would recognize? In other words, are we rejecting him because of our understanding of Christianity, which if you ask 
many people, they would say, here's what Christianity is. You live a pretty decent moral life. You try to help other people. You obey the rules. It's not a fun life, but that's the price you have to pay to get to heaven. That's kind of the cultural conception of Christianity. Who wouldn't reject Jesus if that's what he's selling, if that's what he's offering? But that's not it. Jesus is inviting you and I to a party. If you're going to reject him, reject him because of that. Reject him on terms that he would recognize rather than just a caricature. He's inviting you to festival joy. The party at the Pharisee's Pharisee's house was a party of the in crowd. And then the banquet that the master throws later, who doesn't come? It's the in crowd. Let's look at that. We've looked at the invitation. What about the in crowd? When fellow respectable people reject this invitation, the host says, go out into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Jesus is telling this in a Pharisee's house, the ones with the religious pedigree. They've been waiting. They've been preparing diligently for the Messiah. So if anyone should be invited to the party, it's them. It's them. They've done their job. They've built up their pedigree. Jesus should be coming to them. But Jesus is saying, my people are those with no religious pedigree to stand upon. It's not because he dislikes religious people. Religion is fine if it's pointed in the right direction. Jesus himself is a religious practitioner. What he's critiquing is how these people have misread the invitation. Imagine you had dinner for two at the nicest restaurant in the world. The place where I'd love to go more than any would be the French Laundry in Napa Valley, consistently rated one of the best, if not the best, restaurants in the world. So I get two tickets, and I invite you to come along with me. And you say, great, but first, let me run home and get some Hot Pockets and some Pop-Tarts so that I can bring them, because I want to reciprocate this gift. I want to be able to give them to Thomas Keller. Are you kidding me? This would insult him to no end. You want to bring him Hot Pockets and Pop-Tarts? That's what you want to offer. But yeah, I want to be able to reciprocate. I want to show him how much I appreciate him. It's insulting. Who would want to bring you along? In the culture that Jesus is teaching in, you were invited to parties if you could reciprocate an invitation. So you got invited to parties, especially respectable ones like this, if you had something to barter, if you had something that you could offer the host. And normally it was your social pedigree because you being there made them look good. That's why you got invited and that you could reciprocate and give a feast of equal value to them at a later date. It was all contractual, transactional. In other words, the meals weren't free at all. When you got invited to these parties, you had to pay, not an admission fee, you had to pay with your social capital. You had to pay with a future meal that you would give back to them. And so the meals like this were always packed with the right people. Are you one of those right people? Have you been invited to all the parties that you wanted to? Think back to high school. Were you invited to all of the right parties 
Did you sit with the right people at the lunch tables? Did you then get into the premier school? Did you land the job that you wanted? Did you acquire the relationship that you were looking for? Well, if you say yes, then you're probably living out of this narrative of achievement. You didn't get these things for free. They weren't just given to you out of an act of charity. All of these people recognized, these institutions validated your talent, your distinction, your genius, your beauty. That's why you got in. That's why you were on the in, in the in crowd. That's why you sat at the good table. That's why you got into the prestigious institution, this narrative of achievement. All of these things came to you because of how hard you worked and because of your innate talent. What if it's no? Well, then you're likely living out of this narrative of fear, of deprivation, of shame. You didn't get in, and so you complain about the terms of membership, and you're stumbling through life trying on one thing after another. Maybe this will be it. Maybe this is the key to happiness. Maybe this is where I'll find fulfillment, and you never stop. You keep going one thing to the next. Now, what's the difference between these two narratives, these two responses to different experiences? Well, if you look deeply enough, not much. One leads to pride and self-importance and arrogance, the other to insecurity and fear and shame. But the underlying problem is exactly the same. We want the best seats in the house, and we don't want them for free. We turn down an invitation to Jesus' party because we want an invite based upon our belonging, not our lostness. We want to be invited because we're an insider, because we have something to barter, because we have leverage, because we have social status. We want to be recognized. We don't want to be invited because we're lame and crippled and dependent. So we bring our Hot Pockets and our Pop-Tarts to the party. And we say, God, would you please recognize this? Look, I've brought this gift to you. I'm reciprocating your offer. You're giving me something, I'm giving you something. Hot Pockets and Pop-Tarts. It's insulting to the Lord of the feast. He's saying, come. You don't need to bring anything. Everything is prepared. Don't look at yourself. Look at me. Look at what I have done on your behalf. Look at what I have completed Look at the gifts that I am giving you. Don't try to reciprocate in order to earn more. You have to give up to come to the party. You have to give up both your pride and arrogance and your insecurity and fear. But you get to come to the infinite feast. It's not based on remuneration. It's based on grace. That's the way the invitation comes. That's what gets you into the end crowd. It's not remuneration, it's grace through and through. The infinite feast, finally. Jesus says, invite those who what? Can't pay you back. Invite those who can't pay you back, for then you will be blessed. Now, blessedness in the scriptures is a very complex term. It doesn't just mean happy, although some of your translations may say that. It includes that, but what it means is full human flourishing. It means fundamental joy. It means the rest of your soul. And this is what Jesus is offering. That's the nature of the party. 
He gives you status. He gives you standing. He gives welcome to those who can't offer him anything. He says, come to my party. He invites those who can't pay them back, you and me. Those are who, invite, who are invited to Jesus' party, not those who bring hot pockets and Pop-Tarts and say, thank you, now I'm reciprocating. It's those who say, I have nothing to give. Can I come anyway? Now, I just finished telling you that what lies at the bottom of this narrative of pride and success or insecurity and failure is not all that different. But it's also true that the people that get the invitation, those who reject are part, the the first set of people who get the invitation, those who reject it are part of the right crowd. They're part of the in crowd. They're the neighbors of the master. They're the people with property. They're the peers. And they all find ways to get out. The master of the house goes out in the street then to invite the poor and the outcast and the lame. And they come. Now, what's the difference? The closer you are to the centers of influence, the closer you are to power, the closer you are to that which is good and acceptable and nourishing of your cultural capital in your given community, the closer you see yourself to that, the hardest, harder it is to understand the invitation. It's harder to accept for those in power those who are part of the in crowd, those who have done it right, those who have achieved, it's harder to come to the party on Jesus' terms alone. Jesus' kingdom message tends to flow. It tends to go most naturally towards the poor, towards the outcast, towards the marginalized, because they understand they're not on the in crowd. They're not looking to be recognized. They're saying, Jesus, help me. I'm in need. The influencers, the education, the educated, the powerful find Jesus' message laughable. To receive the kingdom, to come to the party, to accept the invitation, you've got to see yourself as utterly lost. If you're rich and wealthy, you've got to see yourself as poor. If you're socially acceptable, you've got to put yourself in the position of an outcast. If you're an influence broker, you've got to admit that you have no influence whatsoever over God. You have no leverage over him. He is inviting you in purely out of grace. And then a very strange thing happens. When you lose your pride, you get joy. Pride is one of the worst vices. It leads to envy. It has no payoff whatsoever. It drives you into the ground. When you give it up, you get joy. When you throw off your narrative of achievement and self-worth, God throws you a party. When you throw away the Hot Pockets and the Pop-Tarts, when you realize that the meal really is free, then you won't be surprised to find social lepers sitting next to you. You won't be surprised. You won't be put off to share a meal, to share brotherhood, sisterhood with a radical failure. You won't be surprised to find yourself sitting at the same level, at the same table with moral outcasts because they're now your kind of people. You get a taste of Jesus' joy in preparing and serving an infinite feast for everyone who doesn't deserve it. When you begin to put yourself in those places, you get to have a piece of Jesus' joy. Who was most 
overjoyed at the party that the bride threw in Boston? Was it those who ate the meal? Maybe. But the meal ended, and then they went back to their normal everyday lives, which was on the street or in an assisted living home, lonely, dejected. But the bride, the bride got to enjoy the feast for years. It was over and done, but she got to eat and feast on that joy for years to come. Not because she got written up in the paper. She says, no, look what I was able to give. I was able to give joy. Friends, that's Jesus. That's what he wants to do. He wants to bring you joy. That's the infinite feast. It's sitting at the table of Jesus' joy. It's being welcomed to his table. When you give up your claim to the best seat in the house, Jesus hands it to you and says, here, please sit at my table. It's the greatest table you've ever imagined, the greatest feast that will go on for all eternity. Give up your right, your claim to it, and you get it. Give up your entitlement to the invitation, and Jesus throws a party for you, and it goes on forever. Friends, if you've never done so before, take up Jesus' invitation. Come to his party. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would let us revoke our entitlements. Would you let us give up of our sense of self-worth, those things that make us selfish, those things that make us look down at people from the tip of our nose. Father, I pray that you would make us humble people, that you would help us be humble enough to accept your invitation, which says it's nothing about us and everything about you. Lord, I pray that wherever we're coming from, whether we're looking in from the outside, whether we are still asking questions about who is Jesus or whether we've been a follower of you for many years, would you let us humble ourselves at your feet so that we can enjoy you forever. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.